scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 8, as we continue our exposition through the book of Hebrews. Let's read chapter 8. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant have been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their mind, and write in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This far the reading of God's most perfect law. Our text this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 8. We'll meditate in the whole chapter, Hebrews Chapter 8. But before we begin, let's ask once again for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Most holy and gracious Lord, we come into thy presence through our anchor of the soul, our high priest within the veil, to hear thy word that is proclaimed to us today. Apply this word into our hearts, Lord. To praise thy name today and forever. Draw us nearer to thee, Lord. Closer and closer to thee. And impress us more and more with whom thou art. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church. Do you acknowledge here before God and His Holy Church that you, haven't, that you have taken and do take to your lawful husband, Jesus Christ, here present, promising to be obedient to Him, to serve and assist Him, never to forsake Him, to live holily within him, with Him, keeping faith and truth to Him in all things, as a pious and faithful wife, is bound to her lawful husband according to the Holy Gospel. For those who didn't recognize, this is the form 
for the confirmation of marriage before the church, as you can find in the back of the Psalter. One of the most well-known forms of covenant nowadays, and perhaps one of the few remaining, is marriage. Marriage. But more than being marriage to our spouses, first and foremost, as church of God, we are married to Jesus Christ. We married the Lord of the church, the head of the church. And a marriage has obligations and benefits. And Christ secures this marriage through his perfect and complete work. We continue in this chapter. The theme of Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. How is it better? And to meditate on this, we'll divide our text into two points. First, a new priest. We have a new priest, verses 1 to 5. And second, we have a new covenant, verses 6 to 13. So first, let's consider the new priest. After all the author has said about Christ's priesthood, he gives a summary for us of what, all that we have heard in the past chapters. Verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have such an high priest. And we have seen that already, right? How we have this most wonderful high priest, like no other before him, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And the fact that Jesus sat down doesn't seem to be a big deal for us today. What does it mean that he sat down? And why is it important? Oh, actually, it is a big deal. The fact that you sit down after a job, it means that the job is done, right? Well, the work in the tabernacle was never finished. Day after day, the job was never done. Sacrifice had to be, had to be offered daily. Day after day, morning and evening, the, the job was never done. This is an image that the New Testament believers knew very well. They would have understood right away. There was no chairs in the temple. They knew that the tabernacle was not a place to rest. Not a place for hanging out. No place to rest. So this is good news for us, New Testament believers. Because as we see that our high priest sat down, we can be assured that the job is done. He got the job done. The job is finished. It means that he accomplished what no other high priest before him could have done. He finished the job. Atonement for sin is now complete. There is nothing left to be done. Nothing else to be added. It is finished. So now our, our works are not a, to accomplish anything for us. But out of gratitude for what Jesus has accomplished... It is His sacrifice that accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. Not the sacrifice of priests, but His sacrifice. And of course, He sits down, he sits down in the throne because He is the King. As we saw, He sits down upon the throne until all enemies are placed under His footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. As we saw already. He is the priest-king, the only one who is fit to sit upon the throne. The only one who can sit there. He's both priest and king. And what a good news for us to know that our high priest has sat down. The job is done. There's nothing left. We come now into the worship, to worship him, knowing that it is indeed finished. So Jesus accomplished what no other priest could. This is the sum of what the author has said. And how did he do that? Well, because he entered to minister where no one else could. In the true sanctuary. Verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary 
and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. When this verse speaks of true tabernacle, does it imply that the Old Testament tabernacle was false? Is it saying that the old temple was a false temple? Well, the others were a reflection of the true one. The old temple was a reflection of the one true temple. Second Chronicles 2 verse 6 shows that the Lord could never be confined into a place made by human hands, things created. Only Christ could be this full representation of the glory of God, even as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1. Tabernacles were made by human hands. They were man-made. They were copies of the true tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle was not false, but it was temporary. The true tabernacle is the place where God reigns, His heavenly throne room. And we need someone who enters the true tabernacle, the only one who can go in there to offer a perfect and final sacrifice. So the only one who entered this tabernacle could present the first, the final atonement for our sins. What is curious is that Jesus, while on earth, never entered the Holy of Holies. Have you thought about that? How while Jesus was on earth, he never entered into the Holy of Holies. He could. He was the perfect high priest, the final high priest, but he never did. He didn't want to give the false impression that he came to be like other regular priests. That he was coming to minister in the same place that they did. No, he, was come, he has come to inaugurate a better worship. He has come to inaugurate something far greater. A better temple has come with him. He ministers in a better place than the Holy of Holies. He ministers at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Not only that, but he offered a better sacrifice. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Well, that may sound redundant. The fact that they were offering sacrifices, it means that something was being sacrificed. That something had to be sacrificed. And some look back to the Old Testament today and think, oh, what a, what a barbaric religion that was. So much blood. It was a bloodshed. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs day after day, morning and evening. So much blood. What a bloodshed. Do you think that uh, the Old Testament was a barbaric religion because they sacrificed animals? Is Christianity a bloodthirsty religion? Well, first of all, they never believed that they were being saved by the blood of bulls and goats. But if all that animal blood didn't save, didn't save them, then why did God command all that bloodshed? Why so much blood in the Old Testament? Those sacrifices were a picture lesson. They were a picture lesson about the Savior that would come and what He would do. They knew that blood is paid with blood, that only life atones for life, and that all that blood was a sign. It was a sign that one day there would be a final bloodshed that would put an end to all that blood. Not a single drop would then be required of us after the final lamb was sacrificed. That's why we don't have sacrifices nowadays. That's why we don't have circumcision. That's why we don't have, in any of our sacraments, there is no blood being shed anymore. Because we look back and we can say that the last drop of blood was paid in full in Christ. We don't need to shed any blood anymore because He shed it all on the cross. It was necessary that Jesus had something to offer. The second half of verse 3. And what did Jesus have to offer? Oh, he offered Himself. He presented Himself. 
You think being an Old Testament priest was hard? Well, they only offered other things. But Jesus had to offer himself. He had to present himself as a sacrifice. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from, our, from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Only Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, as we saw. Only He could fulfill all those requirements that were in place in the Old Testament. Only He could offer a better sacrifice. And perhaps you're thinking, those Hebrew believers, they were so, so stupid. How would they feel tempted to go back to animal sacrifice? How, how is that even possible? Let me tell you, you, we do the same thing. I hope none of us are tempted to go back to animal sacrifice. But I can tell that many are tempted to find other sacrifices. Many are tempted to find other things to present in the altar of God. As a means to atone for our sins. And the most common thing is, of course, works. We think that it is possible to present our works in the altar of God as a sacrifice. God, I have worked in the church. I did this, I did that. Look all that I have done for you, Lord. And we know what the answer that the Lord gives to those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? We know what the answer that the Lord gives to those who think they can stand before Him and claim any credit for their works, right? Another form of sacrifice is tradition. Oh God, I am part of a good Reformed church. You see, I am a, a good standing member of a good Reformed church. Or by appearance... Oh, I don't commit any crimes. I have a good marriage. I dress well. And before the others, I am a good guy. Brothers, if you rely in anything, any other thing, apart from the blood of Jesus, there is no hope. doesn't matter what that other thing is. There is no better sacrifice than Jesus. There is nothing after his sacrifice. Nothing more to be presented after what he did. And so we should consider the other side too. If you rely on Jesus alone for your salvation, what else are you waiting for? There is surety in Christ's sacrifice. Nothing else needs to be offered. The work is done, it is finished. What are you waiting and why are you living in bondage? You're waiting for something extraordinary when the most extraordinary thing already happened. He came. He offered the final sacrifice. See the freedom that that gives to us. You think that anything better could happen to you? To give the same assurance that Christ's sacrifice gives only Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He did it all. There's nothing else for us to do. So embrace Him completely. Hold Him completely, fully. In summary, Christ is the real thing, not shadows, which is what the author says in verse 5. The tabernacle, the tabernacle on earth was only an example and shadow of heavenly things. It was a type of God's real dwelling place. It was not the real thing. What is a shadow? If you go out in the sun, you can see your shadow. Depending on what time it is, the shadow is bigger or smaller, but the shadow is there. You can see a shadow following you. And kids, perhaps you have played with a flashlight before you put your hand before the flashlight and 
You can see your hand bigger or smaller and you can make different things. The shadow is there. They can teach us about the object behind it, right? By looking to the shadow, we can guess some things about the object. But we know it's not the real thing. It's not the whole thing. The famous illustration is of a shadow of a tree. Imagine, imagine you see a big shadow of a tree. Perhaps you can count the branches in the shadow. Perhaps you can guess what type of tree it is by the shadow. Perhaps you, you might even be able to see some fruits in the shadow. But you'll never be able to eat the fruits in the shadow. It's not the real thing. You can never eat the fruit from the shadow, just from the real tree. This is the picture of shadows in the administration of the old covenant, which was useful to teach us, to prepare us for something, for the new covenant. But it was never meant to be final and effective to save. Only Christ can fulfill this. After Moses gives the instructions of the tabernacle, he affirms that all should be made after the pattern given in the mountain. Exodus 25, verse 40. Therefore, what was built was to be a replica of the original, of the original reality, and not the original itself. Just this reality already gives us light that the shadow was never meant to be final. What they had was never meant to be final. But the fact that Moses was following a pattern of the heavenly reality tells us about another important application regarding worship. Moses had to follow careful instructions on how to worship God. And so do we. We don't have the freedom to decide how worship should look like. Or to change things and make it appealing to our culture. No. We worship God as He ordained to be worshipped. After the pattern that He gave to be worshipped. Is what reformers call the regulative principle of worship. Worship is to be made after a pattern established by God Himself. The Lord of the church. But sadly, this is rapidly changing nowadays. Paul Washer gave an illustration in one of his sermons. How God gave his strict instructions on how to take care of his wife, his bride. He deeply loves his church. And entrusted us to take care of his bride until he returns. But then you decide his bride is no longer attractive to modern people. So you strip her off her clothes. And you dress her up like a prostitute. With the hope of attracting modern carnal men. So the big question Paul Washer asks is. What will the king do when he returns? What will he do when he sees what people have done to his bride? I think Paul Washer's illustration is spot on. Modern evangelical churches are becoming so concerned with attracting modern carnal men that they are stripping off the pure clothes of the church and dressing her up with the adornments of a prostitute. We are reformed and always reforming. We are not inventors, not creators, but reformers. Worship needs to be restored, to be made according to the pattern established by God in His Word. We have a new priest, a better priest, and we obey His instructions fully. And because Christ is a better high priest, He has obtained also a better covenant. Our second point, a new covenant. Hebrews is all about Jesus is better. Right? We have seen this over and over, this theme throughout the book. Jesus is better. And here we learn something else, that he's better. Verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. 
But how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. A better covenant with better promises. What is a covenant? A wedding, as we mentioned, is a form of covenant. In a marriage, you have obligations. You have the obligation to be faithful to your spouse, to love and to care, and to be together until death do us part. By the way, if you have kids, perhaps you had this moment when your, when your children asked, why do you wear a ring? Why, why do mom and dad wear a ring in their finger? What does it mean, and why do they have a ring? Well, it is a sign, right? It is a sign for others that I belong to someone, and a sign for myself to remember, to remember the covenant between us that we have with one another. It's a sign to remember myself of the love that brings us together, of the promises that we have made. Of the promises that this person will be with me until I die. It's assuring. It is precious. We carry these precious promises near to us. And I am not married because I wear a ring. But because I am married, I enjoy wearing a ring. Same thing with the Lord's Supper, right? Because of the covenant. Because of His grace. I now enjoy partaking of this visible sign. Because of what he has done, I enjoy taking part of this wonderful sign that he has given us. A sign that reminds us of his covenant. It's not the thing itself, but it points us, it reminds us of what he has done. A covenant is a legally binding contract between two parties. The biblical language is that God married Israel. This language is so strong that it even says that Israel cheated on him. Jeremiah 3 verse 8, for example. And even as we heard this morning how Ahab broke the covenant with the Lord and made a covenant with false, with wicked nations. So what do you mean that we are under this new covenant? Were people saved by works in the Old Testament? No. There is only one way to be saved, both in the Old and New Testament. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Only one way of salvation, both in the Old and the New Testament. However, the Bible does talk about different administrations of this covenant. From Noah to Abraham to Moses, to David, until finally the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The Dutch theologian Hermann Witsis beautifully summarized this way. For if the salvation be the same, and the author is the same, the manner of communion with him the same, it is certain the covenant itself cannot be more than one. It's one covenant, both in the Old and the New Testament. One covenant, the same God, the same way to salvation. One covenant. So there's only one way of salvation throughout scriptures. The brazen serpent, for example. It's a good example. It was to be kept as a type, right? Do you remember the story when the brazen serpent was raised in the desert? It was a type. A way to point for the final. But when he became, when he, be, he started taking the place of the final, it was to be removed. It had to be removed. People were starting to think that they were being saved by the brazen serpent and not by what the brazen serpent was pointed forward. So he had to go away. In the same way, the Old Testament system was becoming idolatry for the Judaizers in the New Testament. The things which were made to point to God were being used to usurp the place of God. We're going back to the shadows. And this uh, reflects our, 
idolatrous nature that desires to make other things gods instead of the one true God. This new covenant that we enjoy as New Testament believers is final. It's nothing that's going to be a new release of another covenant. There is not a new covenant 2.0 coming. This is it. This is final. It's huge for us. Because it means that the privileges that we already have are the same that we will have in heaven. We as New Testament believers are enjoying the same privileges that we will have in heaven. This is it. We already have access to God's throne room. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne room of grace. It's not that we will have access to God's throne room. We have access to God's throne room. We already have access with boldness. That's the beauty of what Christ has accomplished, of what He has inaugurated with His coming. Now, it is true that we will enjoy, we will be able to enjoy it far better in heaven, but we already enjoy all the benefits of this new covenant already now, here and now. In verse 7, the author explains that the old covenant was faulty. Otherwise, there wouldn't be need for a new one. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that the old covenant was false, or it was sinful or bad. But it means that it was temporal. It was not meant to be final. It didn't accomplish the job by itself. The blood of goats and bulls was never meant to take away sins. And to explain more the superiority of the new covenant, the author introduced this long quotation from Jeremiah 31, from verses 8 to 12. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. So Jeremiah ministered in the last years of Israel before exile. And here it goes, a, a spoiler of our series in Kings. It doesn't get any better after Ahab. In fact, it gets worse and worse. So we had a divided nation, north and south. Widespread paganism. And then finally came exile. Finally, exile came to the nation. So the faithful remnant was very reduced in those days. So the prayer was that God would do something and not forget His covenant. Not forget His covenant people, not forget His covenant with His people. So Jeremiah 31 is God's answer to how He's going to rescue His bride. This verse points out that the expectation for a new covenant was already there in the Old Testament, already with the prophets, already hoping for this day that the new covenant would come. The hope of restoration for Israel was not in their faithfulness, but in God's grace to change the hearts of the people. This means to you, believer, that you are the house of Israel, the house of Judah, by our union with Christ, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, we are made, we, all of us are made the new Israel, God's true Israel, partakers of the covenant. But there is another reason why a new covenant had to be made. Not only the cov old covenant was never meant to be final, but the people didn't keep the covenant. They broke the covenant. Verse 9. Because they continued not in my covenant. They broke the covenant. The own, the own prophet Jeremiah speaks of how Israel committed adultery. They broke their wedding vows that they had with the Lord. And they committed adultery. Jeremiah 3 verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery. I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, 
but went and played the harlot also. God separated a people for himself. He freed them from bondage. He freed them from Egypt. He prepared them a kingdom, a nation, gave them a land, gave them a king, and they didn't keep the covenant. They went after other gods. But even so, God goes after them. He goes after us and does not forsake his people. And perhaps you're struggling thinking, That God will abandon you. Well, here is the promise that God does not abandon those whom He loves. Jesus had to go to the cross and die because God would not abandon His people. God went as far as send His Son to the cross because He would not forsake His covenant and abandon His people. I know that it's easy to struggle with assurance. So easy. How can we know if He still loves us? How can we know if He he still loves us? Or if He will not abandon us? Well, because God is a God of relentless, relentless grace and unfading love. Because of who He is. Because of His character. Not because we deserved but because of who He is. Because He is a God of relentless grace and unfading love. This is amazing. Because He knows we are a doubting people. He knows that by nature we are a doubting people, insecure. And He gives us signs and seals to tell us, remember, look at this. Remember what I have done for you to redeem you. The opening of Article 33 of the Belgic Confession is really beautiful. It says, We believe that our gracious God, taking account of our weakness and infirmities, has ordained the sacraments for us. He not only will not forsake us, but He even gave the sacraments as a sign and seal for us to be remembered that He will not forsake us. Not only He will not do this, but He gave something for us to remember that He will not forsake us. He knows that we are doubting people. He knows our weakness and infirmities. And He gives us signs to remember to remember the covenant. This can be applied to when we are betrayed as well. If our God forsake us when we went af- and even went after us to rescue us, how much more should we do to others? You think we, you know what it means to be rejected? You think you know what it means to be betrayed by someone? What about what we have done to God? You want to tell me that you can't forgive your brother or sister? But what about what we have done to the Lord? And He forgave us and even went after us to rescue us. Brothers, if we focus on what is most important, we will learn how to forgive one another. But finally, the author tells us what the new covenant brings that is so new. In verse 10 to 12, the old covenant was about rituals, ceremonies, feasts, all about the exterior, all about these rituals, the exterior practices. But the new covenant is about the interior. In the new covenant, verse 10, God writes them, that is His laws, on their hearts. This is why we should not treat the new covenant as a matter of external practices. Otherwise, you will not keep His commandments at all. Either by simply rejecting them as an antinomian, or by making them about appearances as a Pharisee. But in the new covenant... 
God makes it about the heart. God writes it in our hearts. You still need to keep the law, but now will come out of your heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who actually makes all the difference. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. As the Holy Spirit is poured out, now we are enabled to obey Him out of love for Him. This is not that God doesn't care about law-keeping anymore, but it is how you obey. It's about how you obey His law. In fact, if you obey from the heart, it will motivate you even more to obey Him more and better. Imagine that you have to stop at a supermarket to pick up some groceries. You are on your way and you stop at the supermarket and you pick up some eggs, milk, bananas, things that you had to have, things that you had to buy, you needed. But as you are walking there, as you are walking through the aisles, you see your wife's favorite ice cream flavor. You see that ice cream that you know that she loves, that would make her happy. So you give the, that spontaneous gift. You decide to bring that home as an spontaneous gift to give to her out of love. It's not because you had to or because you were forced to do that, but because you wanted to please her. You wanted to please your wife, to see her happy. Her joy is your joy. So you wanted to see her happy. Do you see the difference? Can you see the difference? The new covenant is more than formalities, than keeping a set of outward things just because we have to, but because nothing gives us more pleasure, more joy, and seeing that we are pleasing our Savior. Then the joy to know that we are pleasing our beloved Savior. R.C. Sproul illustrated one form of legalism this way. R.C. said, How does one keep the letter of the law but violate its spirit? Suppose a man likes to drive his car at the minimum required speed, uh, irrespective of the conditions under which he is driving. If he is on an interstate, interstate and, he, and the minimum posted speed is 40 miles per hour, he drives 40 miles per hour and, not, and no less. He does this even during torrential downpours when driving at this minimum required speed actually puts other people in danger because they have had the good sense to slow down and drive 20 miles an hour so as no, not to skid off the road or hydroplane. The man who insists on a speed of 40 miles per hour, even under these circumstances, conditions, is driving his car to please himself alone. Although he appears to the external observer as one who is scrupulous in his civic obedience, his obedience is only external, and he doesn't care at all about what the law is actually all about. This kind of legalism obeys the externals while the heart is far removed from any desire to honor God. The intent of his law or his Christ. Do you see the difference of how we obey the Lord? Out of the joy to honor him, to please him, to glorify his name and enjoy him forever. Not out of legalism. The beauty of the new covenant is that more obedience is created by a heart of love. 
Not out of the desire to merit or to deserve anything. Because we know we deserve nothing. But out of the joy that we received it all by grace. Out of the desire to honor God. To honor our high priest for what he has done. God doesn't get rid of the law in the new covenant. Rather, he gives us a new heart to keep his law. This can be a good test on how you stand before God. What is your relationship to God's law? What is your relationship to God's Lord's Day, for example? Is it a burden or a delight for you? Would you rather be home watching the Super Bowl or be at church hearing the voice of Jesus Christ? The law in the Old Covenant was written in tablets of stones. But now, in the hearts. However, this doesn't mean that the Old Testament... That there were no one in the Old Testament that had the law written in their hearts. There were people. But that was not a promise of such a thing happening in the Old Testament. No power to assure that this would happen. The power that comes by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 tells us that with this new covenant... They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. This sounds a lot like a revival, doesn't it? And in some sense it is. It is a revival within God's people. God's people is revived to worship Him. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of people in Israel who were not really Israelites, using Paul's language here. In the Old Testament, God's people was both, Israel was both about the people of God and a political entity. But when the New Testament comes, this political entity dimension is removed. So all those who are there just because of a bloodline or just because of a land, of a physical land, are not true Israel. But now the borders is expanded for all those who have faith in Him, who put their faith in Him. This verse doesn't mean that we don't need teachers anymore or pastors or elders but it means that we now have direct access to God. Pastors don't have a special access to God. Elders don't have a special access to God. Every believer has this access to God. It is a privilege to know that we have such a special access to Him. Through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access to God's throne room. We have access to the place where only once a year, only the high priest would dare to enter. Through Christ, our high priest, we have access to this place. What a privilege. Verse 11, it speaks of knowing the Lord. So how will we know the Lord? Because He will forgive our sins. The forgiveness of our sins is the basis, the basis for our new life. It's only through Christ that this forgiveness is possible. Because we have a new high priest, a new priest. We have all the privileges of this new covenant. Verse 12 For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Many translations use, I will remember their sins no more. The word here is really lawlessness. And their lawlessness I shall absolutely not remember. 
So the law is really central in, throughout this chapter. It's how we stand before God's law. Because of what Christ has done, I can say that my sins, God will remember no more. My lawlessness, He will remember no more. Have you been able to say this with the same confidence that the author to the Hebrews said? That God will remember no more my sins. Have you been able to say that with that same confidence that my sins are forgiven? Have you known Jesus Christ in the same way that the author spoke of him? Or do you still only know Jesus as a picture, as a shadow? It's an incomparable reality to know him as your Lord and Savior. It's nothing like it. The old covenant is obsolete. When the new covenant comes, the old wears out and vanishes away. Verse 13. So there was a kind of plan obsolescence in the old covenant. So it was not made to last forever. It was designed to become obsolete. Imagine that you promised your family to take them out for dinner in a restaurant. So you show them pictures of the restaurant. You show them pictures of the food. You even show them the menu with all the food. But then when you finally get there to the restaurant, and when finally the food comes, what happens? Oh, you put the menu away. Because now the real thing is there. Right? There's no point in looking to the pictures anymore because the real stuff is there. You can't eat the menus. They're helpful to know what you will get for sure. But you can't eat pictures. So when the real stuff is presented, it's presented before our eyes. We should be eager to come to His presence. To take hold of all the benefits that He has conquered for us. It's nonsense to stay in darkness and bondage after what He has conquered. After the access that He has given us. The real thing has come. Enjoy the banquet that He has prepared. See the signs and seals that He has given to His church to remember us of what He has done for us, of His covenant with His people. The old covenant was true and was helpful, but after Christ comes, there is no way we would want to go back. In Christ, the new covenant has come. The final access to God has come. He is the final thing. Only a perfect and sinless priest is capable of offering a perfect and final offering. Jesus is a better high priest and able and willing to save. So now the altar showed how he is a priest of a better covenant. The author used the Old Testament to show how this better covenant was always in view, always presupposed, always expected with eager. This new covenant is free from the limitations of the old. It is complete. Maybe you think that it would be nice to go back to the Old Testament worship when you didn't have to do much. It was all done for you. All the sacrifices, you were just an expectator in the worship. You were there, but the priest did it all. You didn't have access to God after all. So you were just an expectator. Perhaps you treat church today as the Old Testament related to the tabernacle. You come to church, but you think you are just an expectator. Everything is done for you. 
You're just here to watch. You don't want to engage in worship, but to let it be done for you. Brothers, now, it's about where your heart stands before God. It's not enough to be sitting in the pews. If your heart is away from Him, if you have no delight in what is happening here, if you have no part in what is happening here, if you don't engage with what is happening here, it's about where your heart stands before Him. Brothers and sisters, it's time to leave the shadows behind and come to really enjoy the benefits of what Christ has inaugurated for us. There's no way we would want to go back to shadows after Christ has come. After all the freedom He has conquered for us, after the access He has obtained for us, There's no way we would want to go back to shadows. No way we would want to offer another sacrifice in God's altar after what He has done. The veil was torn apart. It is finished. There's no way we could ever go back to shadows. So come and taste of this reality. Taste of the substance of the reality And you will see that you will be much more excited to please your Savior. In Christ, the new covenant has come. And He has told us, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So come to Him. And let us live a life of gratitude for what He has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we approach Thy throne room in all in adoration, knowing that we are in the presence of angels, Worship with us. What a privilege we have, Lord. We live in the days that the prophets long to see. Lord, we are in the consummation of the ages. Thy kingdom has been inaugurated with Christ. Lord, we can look back to the cross and say, indeed, it is finished. The perfect sacrifice has been offered. The priest has entered within the veil, has sat upon the throne. It is finished. Lord, we bring nothing in our hands anymore because we know our high priest has offered it all. Nothing in my hand I pray, simply to thy cross I cling, O Lord. Open our eyes to see of this reality. Open our eyes to see that we live now in a greater time that even the saints of old look forward to see. That the reality itself has come down from heaven. That the very image of the heavenly worship is now present in our midst. What a privilege, Lord. And we don't take this for granted. And Lord, we pray that the worship that we do here today will prepare us for the worship that we'll present before Thee in the heavens. We pray, Lord, that Thou would give us a heart that longs to be with with Thee, that longs to please Thee, Lord, out of love for Thee, out of love for what Christ has done for us. 
Help us to marvel more and more that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is more excellent than everything else. Help us to praise His name today and forever. And we pray in His name. Amen.